This is Luke 23. That's the chapter and the verses are 32 to 46. The crucifixion of Jesus. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insights at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split open. Oh, I, I'm sorry, was split down the middle. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. This is the word of the Lord. So 18 years ago, the film Passion of the Christ, uh, it was released in theaters, right? 18 years ago. I couldn't believe that when I heard that uh, 18 years ago, 2004, right? I wasn't even a Christian then, 18 years. And, and Passion still holds the record for the highest grossing rated R movie of all time. $370 million in the U.S. alone. Do you remember when it came out? My Relevant Magazine published an article talking about the response to the movie when it first came out. Now, a lot of Christians were excited that a movie depicting Jesus was made with some semblance of production value, right? Or quality filmmakers were used, good actors, decent cinematography. The, the bar was kind of low for us. A lot of Christian movies don't have those things, right? So it was really exciting that this, this major film was coming out that depicted what happened to Jesus. Uh, but for all the money it earned, top film critics actually rated the movie really low. Here are some of the criticisms. Listen to these. This one's from The Guardian. The relentlessness of the whippings, beatings, and hammerings of nail goes way beyond dramatic necessity and into some kind of S&M branch of fundamentalism. 
This one's from the New Republic. Gibson's film, virtually stripped of Jesus' incandescent views, is little more than a record of the thousands of barbarities committed by the Romans in Judea. It's New York Times. It's so relentlessly focused on the savagery of Jesus' final hours that it seems to arise less from love than from wrath and to succeed more in assaulting the spirit than in uplifting. And there's no question that this was a violent film, right? But so was Braveheart, right? Everybody loved that. There's one thing to know about these criticisms, though. As the article uh, in Relevant points out, negative reviews for Passion of the Christ strike a different tone than typical bad movie takedowns. Rather than the craft-centric contempt that would mark a normal critical blast, uh, many who oppose passion assume postures of outright disgust. Like the movie wasn't so much bad as it was offensive. It wasn't incompetently made so much as it was painful to sit through. And listen to what Roger Ebert had to say, though. He was a former Catholic altar boy. What Gibson has provided for me for the first time in my life is a visceral idea of what the passion consisted of. That his film is superficial in terms of the surrounding message, that, that we only get a few passing references to the teaching of Jesus is, I suppose, not the point. This is not a sermon or a homily, but a visualization of the central event in the Christian religion. Take it or leave it. He went on to say that while he was no longer religious, he saw in Passion of the Christ the idea that it is necessary to fully comprehend Jesus' sacrifice if Christianity is to make any sense. Now, I think Ebert was onto something. Right? The crucifixion of Jesus is the central event in the Christian religion. And it's an event that makes us want to look away. Why? We've seen more gruesome movies. Right? Maybe some of us have, maybe some of us haven't, but a lot of us have. Right? It's not the most violent movie out there. Right? There are nine Saw movies. Right? Someone saw fit to make nine movies in the, in the series of Saw. And many have seen fit to watch those movies that are based around uh, the torture of individuals and the delight of the maniac who is torturing them. Right? So it's not the gore. Right? The crucifixion is hard to look at because it reveals truth about ourselves and it reveals truth about God. See, even as Christians, we can skim over the crucifixion passages right to the resurrection, right to the ascension of Jesus into heaven, or, or the return of Jesus, where he's going to renew all things, where there's going to be no more pain, no more tears. We love those verses, right? And we should, right? We long for all of that with good reason. But the crucifixion is where we often lose people, right? Resurrection, eternal life, no more tears. That's what everybody wants. But they want it without the cross. The cross reveals truth about us and truth about God that can be hard to swallow. Truth that we don't want to face. The crucifixion is humanity's self-portrait in two ways. It reveals the truth about the hostile state of our natural bent toward God and one another. Apart from his intervention, we reject him, we reject one another. 
And not only that, it pictures the just end of such a relationship. Right? The cross forces us to come to terms with God's wrath. Right? And when I say that, I mean God's settled opposition toward sin and evil. Right? The cross is where our sin and the just consequence for our sin are shown in one place and time. Right? Of course that's hard to look at. And of course you might want to walk out of the theater if we pause at the cross, and we should, it gets uncomfortable. The crucifixion calls us needy people. But not just that, it highlights our greatest need, which is reconciliation with God. It's Christian belief that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. This is a line that's taken from the Apostles' Creed. It's an ancient statement of really just the barest bones of Christian belief. We believe that Jesus, at a particular time, under a particular Roman governor, suffered and was put on a cross. More than that, we believe Jesus was crucified for a reason, right? Not just that he was another victim of ancient Roman brutality, as one of the readers, uh, reviewers said. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at our need for the crucifixion, God's provision through the crucifixion, and our response to the crucifixion. So our need, God's provision, and our response. And now to talk about our need, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning, to our first parents in the garden. But by the end of Genesis 1, God had created this marvelous world with humanity as its masterpiece. Made in his image. The Bible says after God created mankind, that creation was very good. Right? Everything else he created, he called good. When humanity was finally created, he called everything very good. Look, uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis 1. We'll be in there for a little bit. Genesis 1.28. Right after the creation of humanity, it says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. God blessed them. God gave them a job, and he gave them the authority needed to carry out that job. Under his authority, he gave them dominion over life. And so Adam and Eve's job was to cultivate life on earth. Uh, in other parts of the creation account, it talks about how God put them in the garden to tend. Right? God gave them everything except for one thing. The Bible talks about two trees that were in the garden. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They weren't allowed to eat the fruit from the second tree. That tree and that command stood in the garden as a reminder that their dominion was limited. Right? That tree stood as a reminder that their dominion was limited. It was not ultimate. That they were ultimately under the authority of God, the one who made them. And Genesis 3 portrays an exchange between Eve and the serpent, who is later defined as Satan. Look with me at the beginning in Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? 
the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of the fruit, ate it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So in, in this narrative, Adam and Eve chose to listen to a serpent, right? An animal that God had actually given them dominion over. They chose to listen to the serpent instead of their creator. Now out of two trees in the garden, right? They choose the one that God says results in death instead of the one that's called the tree of life, right? That one wasn't off limits. And to summarize, they plunge humanity into a cycle of sin and death that we experience to this day. Right? And so they're kicked out of the garden. They're, they're, they're given a cursed land to work and they no longer have access to the tree of life, even if they wanted it now. It says that he, God drove them out of the garden, that there were cherubim with flaming swords keeping them from getting access to the tree of life. Right? This is the base coat of paint that shows our need for God. This is our lineage. This is the legacy that we belong to. Our first parents rejected God, aligned themselves with Satan in an attempt to gain independence from him. Right? In an attempt to be like God in his authority, but not like him in his kind, gracious, and loving character. Right? Because God calls us to be like him. Right? He calls us to be gracious, kind, and loving like him, but he doesn't call us to have his authority. That's where we get into trouble, where we want to be like God in his authority, where we want to rule the world, right? And all their children carry this down from generation to generation. We all carry this. The story goes on to tell us that their first child, Cain, murdered their second child, Abel, setting the tone for millennia of human strife. If we put theological vocabulary to this, we call this original sin or, or total depravity, this inherent mark and this inherent bent towards sin that we all carry because of our first parents. Right? We're not all as sinful as we could be, but there's not a part of us that's untouched. Right? Think of it as if it were embedded in our DNA and expresses itself in different ways with different individuals. Right? We're not born with a bent toward loving God and loving one another. We're born and, and we emerge as rebels. Some, some of us are quiet about it. Some of us are loud about it. Paul encapsulates this in Romans 5.12 when he says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Same chapter, verse 17, he says, by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Right, so thinking of even that image of, of the cartoon character that I showed the kids starting out already in life with a weight on us, right? And then adding that weight ourselves throughout our lives and having other people add that onto us. Right? Death reigns in this world because of sin, right? We see this all over, we see it in the news, we see it locally, 
kidnappings, murders, systemic oppression, invasions. But it also exists in us. God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 2. So we start out, we're all sinners. And if you're not convinced, and you'd like to know if you fit in that category, this is a hard illustration to even imagine, but you could just picture your thoughts, your memories, maybe even your plans projected on this screen behind me for everyone to see. Just running through for everyone to see. Right? We can praise our merciful God that that's actually not possible, right? I've heard another preacher put it this way. We sin in our thoughts. Aren't you glad people can't see what you're thinking? We sin in our words. Have you ever said or typed something that you really regret? We sin in our deeds. Have you done things you weren't supposed to do? We sin in our motives. Do you do good things to manipulate others and get praise? Do you get angry and upset when people don't compliment you for the good things you did? We sin through commission. We do stuff we're not supposed to. We sin through omission. We don't do the things we're supposed to. We walk in this daily, right? We struggle with this daily in big ways and in what we would call small ways. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Ephesians. He's writing to the church, explaining the work of God in the lives of believers. And he brings them back to where they were, to where we all are before Christ, before God's intervention. If you have your Bible, it's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our sinful nature is to align with the prince of the power of the air, the same serpent, the same spirit that Adam and Eve aligned with. Carrying out the desire of our bodies and our minds, not regarding God. That's our nature. Paul says, apart from Christ, they were children of wrath. And then he says, like the rest of mankind. This is all of us. This is where looking at the crucifixion makes us squeamish. Like children of wrath? In the line of fire of God's settled opposition against sin and evil? Me? God is a God of wrath? I thought he was a God of love, rich in mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Right? He is. And were he to tolerate sin and evil and corruption, he wouldn't be. Were God never to bring justice to our hostility toward him and one another, he would be unfair in the cruelest way. See, when you're the perpetrator, wrath is ugly. When you're the victim or someone you love is the victim, you want wrath. You're upset when there's no wrath toward those actions. You want someone to be indignant when the vulnerable are abused. That's what everybody's even talking about right now with the current invasion in Ukraine. People are upset. Somebody should be helping them. Why are people outraged? 
And what are people asking for? They're asking for people to come in and take care of the folks who are doing the evil, right? They're asking for people to do that. And what does that involve? Think about the end of that desire, right? We have a problem when God thinks like that, but we don't have a problem when we think like that, right? And God is the most trustworthy with that kind of power and with that kind of bent, right? We see that wrath as a natural love-motivated response, right? When we're protecting those that we love, we see it as natural and love-motivated. And seeking justice against those who harm them, we see it the same way, right? We are made in the image of God. That's why we feel this. Right? A while back, I was filling out a developmental questionnaire for one of our kids, and one of the questions asked, is your child aware if something's unfair? This was for zero to five-year-olds, right? It's a marker of human development to recognize when something's unfair, when something's unjust, even if it's recognizing that one sibling got a donut and you didn't, right? One helpful uh, illustration I've heard before, I had a pastor who, who said he had never thought that he could kill another human being until he held his baby daughter in his hands for the first time. But the overwhelming love that he had for her came with an overwhelming desire and willingness to protect her against anybody that would do her harm. I'm not talking about uh, an unhealthy desire to just go out there and eliminate anybody who looks at her funny. I'm not talking about hypervigilance or the caricature of having meeting boyfriends with a shotgun in your hand kind of thing. I'm talking about this love that says, you will not touch my children, right? God loves his creation. And the worst thing for creation is humanity in God's place. God has wrath for sin and we're responsible for sin in the world. Where should that wrath be directed? Paul says, you were in the line of fire. God needed a way to deal with sin and keep us. Right? God needed a way to deal with sin and keep us. How could this be done? Right? God's wrath in protecting peace, I mean, if you think about it, it's even scarier than the former, that my former pastor's wrath for his daughter, right? All of our sin is against God. David himself in Psalm 51, as he's lamenting his own adulterous and murderous life, he writes, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The crucifixion calls us children of wrath. It tells us you started that way. That's why we want to look away. The crucifixion makes us aware of our need. And one of the main ways it makes us aware is that the crucifixion is a provision for us. Right? It's not just a message for us to read. It's a provision for us. Jesus suffered and died for a reason. It's like when someone gives you a bar of soap for your birthday or deodorant. Right? What message might they be trying to get across to you? Right? Body odor, right? Well, God sending his son to die for our sin is a needed gift that tells us a lot about ourselves. 
Let's look at the provision of the crucifixion. Let's look at what God accomplished to meet this neediness that we have. 700 years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Skipping down to verse 10, because I want to highlight this. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. He will carry them. The events and purpose of Jesus' suffering and death on the cross were predicted centuries before he even walked the earth. Isaiah looked forward to a Messiah who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, someone who would suffer because of our sin. He says, we like sheep have gone astray, not that far off from what Paul was saying in Romans and Ephesians, right? We're all following our own desires. But then we see it's not just because of our sin that Jesus suffers and dies. It says that the Lord laid our iniquity on him. It says it was God's will to crush him, that this Messiah would make an offering for our guilt so that many might be called righteous. Right? We had a problem, our sin. God had a solution to crush his son in our place. Now, crucifixion was common in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus, especially for Jews. Rome had bought their peace through brutality, occupation, and oppression. And the cross was a symbol that they wouldn't tolerate any threat to, to what's now called the Pax Romana, right? This era of peace. Every once in a while, Jews would revolt against Roman occupiers and there are even records that after these revolts, they would line the streets with the crucified as a reminder, you do not want to be like these people. As in Jesus' case, crucifixion would often involve flogging beforehand. This was the prep time where they would strip the person naked or near naked, tie them to a piece of stone, lash them with a flagrum, which would be a wooden handle with leather straps that had either metal or stone attached to the ends. This is what Jesus would have endured. Right? We read it as just a short line in the Bible. Accounts say that he was scourged and delivered over to be crucified. And we just read it like that and we move on. But because we're not in that era, because we thankfully live in a time and place where people are not being scourged or crucified, we don't even really know what that means. 
right? But this scourging was enough to kill a person on its own. And we know Jesus didn't even sleep the night before this. From there, Matthew recounts in chapter 27 of his gospel that he was taken by soldiers, mocked, beaten, they punctured his head with a crown of thorns. The Apostle John, in his account, writes about how Jesus carried his own cross outside the city walls. Luke says he was led away with two criminals. It was common that after all this, they would lay the equivalent of a railroad tie on the back of the ones to be executed. And of course, Jesus couldn't carry it all the way, which is why we read that they compelled a bystander, Simon, right, to carry it for him. And when it came time to be crucified, they would have attached the, the main post to the crossbar, taken thick nails, pierced each hand of the outstretched arms, then both the feet, one on the other, to the post. These are some of the most sensitive places in the body. Right? Jesus didn't just die, Jesus suffered. After that, routine was to drop the post into a hole in the ground. And you know, the main cause of death for crucifixion was slow asphyxiation. It wasn't bleeding out because when your body is hung in that position, you can't use your diaphragm. And so you're forced to push up to try to breathe or they would put a, a wood wedge under you just to make your suffering last longer. You know, the Apostle, Apostle John said that Jesus' mother was there, right? Mary at the foot of the cross. And one of the last things that Jesus does is to ask his friend John to take care of his mom. Luke says in chapter 23, verse 33, when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. But the worst part of this suffering comes when a three hour period of darkness comes in the middle of the day, and Jesus says this on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in this moment that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us in our place, right? It's here where for the first time, God the Son experiences a separation from God the Father. It's here where God himself atones for the sins of mankind. It's here where the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was given to him, and his righteousness was given to us. Our debt was paid by the blood of Jesus. And this is what we sing about. In the garden, our first parents substituted themselves for God. In our lives, we've done that too. On the cross, our God substituted himself for us. Right? In the garden, our first parents substituted themselves for God. On the cross, our God substituted himself for us. In Romans 5.19, Paul says, For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Work that we don't have to do. Jesus has done it. Luke says in that moment when Jesus died at the temple of God just down the street, the veil, this really thick curtain, not like the ones over there, thick, 
unrippable, right? The veil that divided God and everybody else from the most holy place was torn in two. Right? Jesus had opened access to God for all by atoning for our sin. Right? We no longer needed a high priest to talk to God for us. We have access directly to God through Jesus. That's a really big deal. And there's so much more that I'd love to explain, but we don't have time. But the bottom line is this. Jesus removed the chasm between us and God through the cross. The Apostle John says that after this, Jesus said, it is finished. Right? Jesus' work was accomplished then and forevermore. The price has been paid once and for all, never to be paid again. Right? Never to be paid again. You don't have to pay that price. Just put your faith in Jesus. Amen. Right? That's why when we confess during our Sunday gathering, we read that assurance after, and we remember that we're not confessing to, for our salvation. We're confessing because God has already freely offered that, and we're just agreeing with him. Right? We don't need to be navel-gazing, uh, you know, just torn apart by our sin. We can rejoice because of the work of God. Luke records uh, this once-for-all price that Jesus paid in Luke 23, 46. It says, And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. Jesus died. He fully died. Right? This is the central event of the Christian religion, as Roger Ebert said. We worship a God who was voluntarily executed by men and punished by God on our behalf. That makes people uncomfortable because it, really, it, it makes no sense when you think about it. Didn't make sense back then. Doesn't really make sense to people now. The Apostle Paul says in a couple places that our world views this as foolish. Right? If we get past our need for the crucifixion, we might even still ask, why would God do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely someone will die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. And here it is in verse 8. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is not just a picture of our depravity. It's a picture of God's love for us. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for perfect people. He died for us, right? Praise God, he died for us. God has given himself to meet our need. So how should we respond? In Acts 2, after Jesus has ascended into heaven and commissioned his apostles to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, Peter preaches his first sermon, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's in the public square of Jerusalem, and he essentially walks through who Jesus is and tells the crowd that he is Lord and Christ and that they are the ones who crucified him. They're cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? 
He tells them, repent. Another word that maybe a lot of us feel weird about. But here's what it means. It means to have a mind change that leads to a heart change that leads to a life change. How should we respond to the crucifixion? Repent. Right? Correct our erroneous thoughts about Jesus, about the cross. Turn from the lies that we believe about ourselves and the lies we believe about God. The cross forces us to face the truth. We need the cross, right? Every beautiful verse you can quote, there are so many beautiful verses in the Bible, and we love to quote them. Every beautiful verse you can quote is meaningless without the cross. God so loved the world that he, what? gave his only son on the cross. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. How? On the cross. Romans 8, 28, people love this one. And we know that in all things, God works for good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose because of the cross. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That beautiful verse. Because Jesus died, cried, and passed away on the cross for us. But really, when Peter addressed the crowd in Acts 2, he was talking to non-believers. And when he said repent, he was calling them to change their mind about Jesus, to turn away from their sin and toward God. Because here's the thing, the really hard thing about this is that this is for everybody, but at the same time, it's not for everybody. Right, and I would be an unfaithful pastor and teacher of scripture if I led you to believe that, that, that that's not the truth. There is extreme inclusivity in Jesus' invitation but there's exclusivity. And the thing that it hinges upon is your faith in Jesus. John 3.36 says it bluntly, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. This gift stands extended to us, right? But if you don't accept it, how on earth can it be applied to you? To reject it is to remain on the old path of humanity, the path of destruction. And you know, we're intentionally a church that doesn't, I I don't want to use hell as a scare tactic to get people to believe in Jesus. I think that is a dangerous motivation. But at the same time, I, I want you to know the truth of scripture. Now, I don't think it's good to use it as a scare tactic because I believe the beauty of Jesus outweighs the horror of hell. The beauty of Jesus outweighs the horror of hell. We should love him because of who he is and what he's done for us, not out of fear. But at the same time, we're a church that believes in the cross. We're a church that loves one another enough to tell each other the words of Scripture. Right? This is not something I want people to find out years down the road and be like, wait, you believe this? I've been here all this time. I had no idea. Right? The, 
Bible is there for you to read. That is what we believe. You can open it. You can read it from cover to cover and know. That's the difference between Christianity and a cult. See, cults give you a little bit of information at a time, a little morsel at a time. And the further and further you get in, just like a barb that's kind of being, you know, like a fish hook, the further and further it goes in, the harder and harder it is to pull out because you've slowly consumed. And then once you're fully in, they reveal the hard information. That is not Christianity. The cross is front and center. That's the hardest information you need to hear. Acts 14, 12, Peter says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And I just want to close by echoing the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. He says, For I passed on to you as most important, but I also received that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. <laughs>